Okay. Hello and welcome to the Sport Professor Podcast, a show of the sports student and fan who wants to learn more about the underpinnings of the sporting world. I'm your professor, Dr. Drew Sikansky, and today we will deep dive into the world of sexuality in sports with our special guest, Dr. Chelsea Connard. Beginning with a discussion of what sexuality is and how it is related to sports and sport marketing, we will then move to dissect numerous sporting organizations and their policies for addressing transgender athletes. So, if you ever wondered how gender and sport are intertwined, or what organizations like the NCAA, the IOC, and high school athletic associations are doing to tackle the subject of transgender athletes, this is the podcast for you. So just sit back, relax, and enjoy. This episode of the Sport Professor Podcast. Today, to help us break down our topic, we are being joined by Dr. Chelsea. Connor, who is an assistant professor of recreation and sport management at Coastal Carolina University. Chelsea has a Bachelor's of Arts from Muskingum University in Communication and Gender Studies, a Master's in Sport Administration, and a PhD in Media and Communications from Bowling Green University. Her research interests include communication in sport, representation of femininity in sport media, sport media campaigns, and constructions of social and cultural identities through sport. Most recently, Chelsea's research has focused on girl athlete identity construction and social media self-representation of female athletes. I first met Chelsea when she was hired as a professor at Coastal Carolina University and assigned to teach moral and ethical reasonings, sport media and communication, and sport and gender studies. During our time at CCU together, she helped to educate me on a number of issues in sport, including on the topic of sexuality in sport. And so, I thought who would be better to bring on the podcast to dive into the subject we have today and help teach us all a little more about it. Can you maybe just start by maybe highlighting the key terms, and maybe all of them are key, but just going through the terms and maybe defining them or giving an example where we need an example just to make sure everyone's on the same page to start? Absolutely. So, when we're talking about sex and gender, oftentimes these two terms get conflated, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. People get confused on how we use sex and how we use gender. I think the best way to describe it is we live in a time period where those gender reveal parties are very popular, right? So after I I define these two terms, I want you to tell me what they really should be called, okay? Okay. (laughs) That's how I usually roll with this. That's a great start. So essentially... Essentially, sex is biological, okay? So it's the parts that you're born with, essentially. We're talking XX chromosomes, XY chromosomes, okay? Um, And that's solely based on that. Okay. Gender, on the other hand, is something that we've socially constructed. So in the most basic essence, when you're born, what happens? What do they give you? They normally would give you your biological sex. Right. Then they, yes. Then they hand you to your mother, and what are you in? You're all wrapped up in a sheet or a blanket? Either a blue blanket or a oh. pink blanket, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. <laughs> right, so blue and pink, that's a gender social construction. We have decided as a society that pink is feminine and blue is masculine. Yep. So that is a gender social construction, essentially. So as a society, we've decided what is innately feminine and what is masculine, essentially. So those are social constructions. Picking up what I'm putting down? Yeah. And so it starts right from birth. 
the right. construction of an individual's gender, even if it's not on purpose. Well, right. I guess it's, it's on purpose to a degree. They're purposely putting you in the color, but they're not purposely trying to tell you or tell the baby what the their social construction should be in the world. Right. This is all implicitly done, right? And it then yeah. influences what we identify as gender identity. So it just continues from there. There's research that says little girls and little boys are treated significantly differently, even as newborn. The amount yeah. of time we let maybe a boy self-soothe himself over a little girl, we kind of grab her immediately and want to console her, right? So these things start, these start at super young ages. Even think about toys, what toys you're given when you're little versus, you know, the opposite sex. Yeah. Just as you're talking, I have, I have two nieces, the youngest of three. So my middle sister, as soon as they were born, it, they're her nieces as well. She started calling them princess. Right. Not in a, in a bad way, obviously, but more to yeah. make, her, make her feel special, make her feel like she's important and unique and, you know, all the good things that come with that. But mm-hmm. that ties into what you're saying as far as that idea of princess. OK, well, then you tie that into wearing tiaras, into liking Barbies, into liking American Girl mm-hmm. dolls and all of that starts to flow from that kind of beginning initialization into what a gender should be. Right. And it just keeps going too. think about the way beauty products are marketed toward men and women, right? Why do razors have to be pink in order for women to utilize them? Yeah. In- right. It's, it's kind of laughable when you truly think about it. <laughs> I can use a razor and it not be pink, right? Like- yeah. Th- the terminology and the imagery and even, even the underscore of music between the two different products, like Dollar Shave Club. So yeah. like, they come out and like I, I initially saw their commercials and super masculine. They're funny. A lot of images mm-hmm. of men doing stupid things. Athletes have been utilized in those ads. Yeah. Too. So you juxtapose that to like Bic razors. It's like very soothing commercial. A lot of pink in there. A lot of calm oh, yeah. and kind of relaxing tones to it. So it's completely different. See exact same product in theory it's a razor i wonder is there research that shows that that is a more effective way to market and sell the product not necessarily okay a lot of times now you'll see where people are actually calling these things out and we can Mm -hmm. thank social media for that people kind of putting uh certain companies on blast i saw um actually ellen degeneres the other day pulled up something that she saw um, it was pens and it was marketed they were pink pens just writing, you know, like normal ballpoint okay. pen. Yeah. And it said, um, pens for her. Thank goodness <laughs> that these pens came out so we could finally write. Oh, my God. So I, I would say I don't see it stopping, but I think people are, are more aware of it now. I mean, the vast okay. majority of us, I don't think it's just something that we've blindly consumed for so long. That yeah. it's just something that has become a norm in our society. This idea that we must brand things based on gender. I don't think it's going to go away either. It's, I mean, from a pure marketing standpoint, when I teach marketing, one of the things we talked about is how we segment a market. Yeah. And one of the easiest things to say is gender and race, because those are things in theory that we can see. And so students, oftentimes when we, when we do assignments and we set up, okay, you have to do a market segmentation assignment. They say, all right, well, I'm going to segment to um, white females. 
Okay. And the hard part becomes when, when we when they do that, and I try to stress this, and I say, okay, how are you going to get a white female to respond? What about your message is going to be specific to a white female? And race is a whole other conversation. It's very hard to do, but it's the same basic principle yeah. what they normally come up with are stereotypes based on gender. Uh-huh. So they say, well, we're going to use pink, just like we talked about with razors. It's going to be pink, and it's going to be soothing, and we're going to show females in the ads and I say, okay, that, that might work, but what we're doing is we're playing into stereotypes, and we have to be very careful when we're playing into those stereotypes not to overdo it. Because right. in doing so, we actually might risk having a backlash for doing that. And it kind of sounds like that's a little bit what happened with Ellen. They tried to play yeah. into something like, oh, let's do a segmentation and focus on women, but then it almost comes off as corny, cheesy, or disrespectful to a large group of people. And what's crazy is that these stereotypes are still believed by a lot of people, right? I mean, you and I teach anywhere from 18-year-olds to, you know, we have adult students, et cetera. But this idea where these stereotypes will still come into play, I still have male students when I ask, why don't we see more women in sports? And they'll still raise their hand with women in the classroom and they say, well, women just aren't as interested in sports. And I, uh, every time, every year, every semester, it doesn't matter, that'll happen. And I see the women in the room, you know, their heads turn and I see some faces. But it's no doubt every time. So all this messaging, all these social constructions, they're, they're still super enveloped and intertwined in our society and culture. It still blows my mind, you know, yeah, sometimes. It, I'm it, like, oh. I like how you put it just from a, a child's born standpoint because it, that's how deeply ingrained it is. And to get yeah. to the question that you asked with a gender reveal party, mm-hmm. so based off the definitions, that's not a gender reveal party. It is a sex reveal party. Yeah, it is a sex reveal. It's it's interesting when you construct it like that because you're identifying the individual that's being born their biological sex. But by right. calling it gender reveal, it I don't know, maybe it sounds better, maybe it's better marketing for the party, but it's almost, again, it's playing into these constructs that are socially constructed way before the child's even born. You're saying mm-hmm. almost this is how we're going to raise them. If it's a female, we're going to raise them by giving them Barbies and dolls and having mm-hmm. pink and and having tiaras and all that oh, yeah. versus if it's a male, it's going to be masculine and blue and trucks right. and Legos yeah. or whatever. And I'll give you another great example. Yeah. So my husband and I just went to find out the, the sex of our own child. Mm-hmm. And we went to this ultrasound place, right? And she was like, do you want to take a pre-photo before you go in? And I was like, excuse me, what are you talking oh, about? What? And, <laughs> and she handed me and Brock in, in her hand were um, – a tutu, a literal tutu, right? Oh, gosh. Or a football. So it was tutus or touchdowns. So before we went in to confirm the sex of our child, yeah. she was like, do you want to put on the tutu or hold the football? And I simply said, no, thank you. We're good. <laughs> but it's so enveloped, right? I was yeah. like, oh, no, thank you. But uh, yeah, so that was a marketing scheme that you know she had put in place in her business of Touchdowns or tutus, so guess, is it going to be a boy or a girl based on, you know, those items? And it's, <laughs> it's interesting because it, that, something like that, I think, to most people is very subtle. Oh, yeah, Har- some, harmless. Yeah it's, yeah, it's not a huge deal. It's not something that people are going to be upset about. But as we talk about with, no. with all marketing, the more you see something, the more you hear something, the more normal something becomes, the easier it is for us to go along with it and to not ask questions about, well, why is this the case? Or for something like issues of gender and sexuality, 
what are the potential long lasting consequences on the individual for doing something like this? Right. And that's when we're starting to talk about these terms that are maybe a m- more convoluted or there's a gray area, I guess, um, I think is where people start to then see confusion, right? Because yeah. we're so used to checking a box, yeah. whether that box is male or female, black or white. We live mm-hmm. in a checkbox culture, yeah. right? So when we're starting to talk about things like gender identity, we're talking about identity based on a spectrum. So on the right side, you would have male and on that left side, you would have female. Mm-hmm. And this idea that some people just don't feel innately female or innately male, essentially. So they exist on this continuum, essentially, where one day they may feel more female or one day they may feel more male. And then the way in which they interact in society is dependent on that identity for that time period. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is when you start to see, I think now we're up to 15 or 16 states that on your birth certificate, you can now check a box that says gender nonconforming. Right. You don't want to essentially say that you're male or female. So I think that's now where people are starting to get confused. And that's where we see controversy coming up, especially in sport. Mm -hmm. When you're talking about one of the only places where we are still truly sex segregated. And uh, let me jump in. Not only are we sex segregated, but majority of people are okay with it being that way. 100%. Right. Yeah. And it's also important when we're talking about things like sex, gender identity or expression and sexual orientation, that these three things or these four things are not mutually exclusive either. One does not influence the other one, for example. So just because you identify as male does not mean that you are sexually attracted to women for example, okay. right? I think yeah. that's another way where we kind of go wrong in terms of all these these terms. Yeah, that, and that, that um, makes sense. what makes perfect sense. I had never thought of it like that, that so often we do link an individual's sex or gender. I guess we link both of them mm-hmm. to then a sexual orientation. We just think, right. okay, Immediately, yeah, you're a male. In most people's minds, that automatically will go to, well, then your sexual orientation is that you like females. Right. And what you're talking about is our, it's called a heteronormative environment. Okay. So essentially it's this cultural bias that our society has been constructed this way, right? Socially that we favor heterosexuality. Yeah. Our society has been set up for the heterosexual couple. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can look at that from multiple views through legislation. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until this past decade where we saw equality for same sex marriage. Yeah. Like what? That's crazy when you really yeah. think about it. And think about the commercials that you see every day. Yeah, we, we are starting to see families that don't fit the husband, wife, two and a half kids model. Mm-hmm. Um, but a vast majority of them still do, right? Think of your State Farm commercials. Who's in the car driving? It's a mom, a dad, and the kids are in the back. Yep. That's, that's the type of cultural bias that we just have existed in. So that's why we think that way. Yeah, and it's, it's interesting because growing up in the 90s, I was just watching Scream 2 last night. And <laughs> yeah. Just, you know, it's Halloween. It's that time of year you're watching it. And every relationship in there or even hint of attraction in there it all kind of goes to what you're saying, that heteronormative idea. It's, it's a male yeah. and a female. And mm-hmm. diversity in the 90s was if we had people who weren't just white in the movie. So if we had people from different right. ethnic backgrounds or racial backgrounds in the movie. But seeing that so much in the media, especially for me growing up in the 90s, it just gets ingrained in you. Mm-hmm. It's not that you know growing up, I was actively taught what is normal is for a man to be with a woman. But seeing it so much, so constantly through the media, it just subtly gets to you to where that's how you view the world. 
Right. And exactly. It's, I, th- I do think it now we're moving to have more representation in oh, media. But even in sport itself, representation of what we're talking about is almost non-existent. Right. And what's ironic, not really ironic, but we oftentimes hear, I know you and I have heard this multiple times, that sport is a reflection of society and society mm-hmm. is a reflection of sport, right? Mm-hmm. They're mutually exclusive. They represent each other. But for some reason, when we're talking about issues of sexuality, LGBTQ inclusivity, whatever that may be, sport just seems to lack in terms of where society is, right? We're talking about female yeah. representation, all that kind of stuff. It just, sport seems to be just a little bit behind. Yeah, and I wonder, I wonder why that is because I hit on that so much in ethics class, any type of sport and sociology discussion, that's a big mm-hmm. reason, thing we talk about. And it's even a reason we talk about why we study sport management and sport in general. But right. in this one area, it's really, it's really hard to find a representation. I mean, you can find individual examples of, uh, a female athlete who might be married to another female or a male athlete who might be married to another male. But those examples are normally the same examples for everyone that we constantly mm-hmm. use. And they're they're really not portrayed a ton in the media. No. Like I, I even think back to this past summer where we have the Women's World Cup. Fantastic right. event. Our women's team does awesome. They win it. You have multiple individuals on that team who are gay. You even mm-hmm. have one couple on the team who I believe are now married. Yep. And the only reason I knew about it was because I followed them on their social media accounts because their social media accounts were hilarious. And yeah. I saw them depict themselves how they wanted to be depicted. That's not something that was yeah. talked about in the media. It's not something that was highlighted, uh, maybe for good or bad. I don't know. But right. it's just not normal for us to hear about it. Whereas in other forms of media now, like I said, it's normal for me to watch a TV show and see a gay couple on it or to watch a movie and see that representation. Yep. So why is it that we don't have that representation or we don't show that representation even when we have elite level athletes who identify this way? Right. Uh, Many scholars have varying opinions on why and I don't think there is one solid right answer. Okay. But I think you have to go look back at the historical sense of what it means to be an athlete, right? We live in a world still where we, I say athlete, where I say basketball player, you immediately probably think of a male. We have to still identify female athletes as first and foremost female. Mm -hmm. Kind of this notion ingrained in us that athlete is innately masculine, which is innately male, right? And we know from studying sport management that a lot of sport is still what we consider to be a what? Old, old boys network. Yeah. Facilitated by men, set up for men, by men. So yep. women still just have had, I think, a hard time gaining entry into this space and gaining respectability. And later when we talk about media, the media doesn't really help with that respectability either in terms of female athletes being legitimate female athletes mm-hmm. um, competing at high levels. And now we, we see with the Women's World Cup producing significant revenue. Oh, yeah. Right. So I think there's a lot there, but there's no right one answer. Right. Or you and I would be loaded because we would have the answer. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, so you brought up this idea of like what if I say basketball player, what do you normally think of? And it's not only that I generally tend to think of a male basketball player. When we start talking about what makes a basketball player great or even just a player good, normally the qualities that I think of are athletic qualities like being able to jump really high, being agile, being quick, all those things that I associate those things also with masculinity. So it's not just Uh that my mind goes that. I then associate those qualities 
which then makes me now I start you start to go down a rabbit hole. Even if we're yeah. talking about female sports and and we're talking about you know the WNBA and and their athletes, I'm still thinking of qualities that in my mind are somehow innately tied to a male athlete and has masculinity right. that I'm now trying to ascribe to a female athlete, which almost it's hard to then separate the female athlete from the masculine characteristics, which then gets all even more confusing. Right. And what you're referring to is what we call the female athlete paradox. So you're talking about a tension between Mm -hmm. female and athlete. So what we know is to be athlete, things like you talked about, right? Being tall, aggressive, Mm -hmm. maybe innately violent, muscular, all those types of masculine characteristics combined with what we know to be female or accepted forms of femininity. So passiveness, um, not being too muscular, these two things don't go together. So that's where you see that tension. And we refer to it as the female athlete paradox. I, I never heard of that term, but it's nice that it has a label. And it seems yeah. it seems like that would make it extremely difficult to be a female athlete then. Right, because you're constantly negotiating athletic ability with socially acceptable notions of being functioning in society, I guess. Because yeah. we've seen athletes who go outside those realms of what we know as feminine. Yeah, Serena has even been in the news for this. Mm-hmm. Why was it a news story when Serena flipped out, got angry on the tennis court? Yeah, be- because she's a female, and we think that females right. should be prim and proper and, like you said, more passive. Right. No one freaks out when, uh, you know, a guy doesn't. <laughs> like, I heard a couple people in the sport media at least say, well, wait, we love John McEnroe. Like, we, right. we worship him. And he was... 10 times worse than what she just How many did. rackets did he break? Yeah. Oh, he was he was obnoxiously arrogant right. on the court. He was super aggressive. And when Serena does just a little of that, a lot of people go up in arms. Yeah. And we would be, we would be amiss not to also mention the fact that it, her race comes into play with that too. Oh, right? yes. Um, 100%. Not only female, but an angry black female, right? That and, stereotype yeah. was huge when that story came out i mean it was evident that that's what they were going after yes it but it just takes me back to the challenges that female athletes themselves must face that things like when i'm playing i never thought about or things that about you know when i'm playing if i'm aggressive if i'm yelling if i'm whatever it's not only don't have to think about i'm celebrated for doing that I'm applauded Uh for doing that. We applaud like NFL players, like you said, for being violent and aggressive and obnoxious. But if we see a female soccer player going hard to a tackle or do something aggressive on the field, all of a sudden that makes national news and we're talking about it and we're pointing to it and be like, ah, that's really not how the sport should be played. It's almost like it's coded language. We're not specifically calling attention to the fact that it's a female but all the things we're pointing out are things that we don't care if a male does, but we care if the female does. So it, 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 as a female athlete, it must be hard to try to balance all of that about what is okay and not okay. How should I present myself on the field, off the field? I, I can't imagine all that. Yeah, it's a constant negotiation. And through my own research, it's not just something that, that um, female athletes deal right at a later age, mm-hmm. I guess, when you may be thinking about notions of femininity. It's something that happens again when we're little. Yeah. We uh, innately know immediately where female athletes belong and where they don't belong and all those yeah. all those fun things that go along with yeah. gender. I always say the first time I was super aware of my own gender is playing sport. That was the first time I realized that there was a difference between girls and boys, essentially. I was the first born 
in my family. I didn't have any siblings at the yeah. time. And my dad decided to put me on a all boys coach pitch team. And, um, I held my own. Okay. <laughs> but I can remember my first practice being at that first practice and the coach making a comment to one of the other little boys saying, Hey, don't throw it that hard at her. Oh, right? wow. Don't throw it that hard. And I can clearly remember my dad walking out in the field and saying, Hey, that's not how we're going to roll. Who knows what he ended up saying to the guy I couldn't yeah. hear. But um, from from that day on, uh, I was treated a little bit differently. But that was the first time I, time I recognized, like, wait a minute. Why wouldn't he throw that bar, ball as hard to me as he would, I don't know, Johnny next to me? Because I'm female. Well, it's, and I, I think, think I remember your your dissertation, some of your research you've done, but it, it ties in with, and they've done a series of commercials on this now, like the, what does it mean to throw like a girl, right? And so right. They, they go through and they ask children what that means. And it's a term that has just become commonplace in our society to say that to someone as a form of an insult and to have a negative mm-hmm. connotation with that. And in this commercial series that they did, and I know you did some research around the same, the same idea, even the kids at first didn't realize, it seemed like they didn't realize what it meant, at least the male athletes. And then the male athlete, yeah. as they started to get into it more, it was like, well, wait a minute, like, why is that an insult? But it's in, again, it, it becomes ingrained in people because they right. hear it. And if no one's challenging it, like your dad challenged them and said, no, 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 we're not going to treat her different. If no one's challenging it, then it becomes accepted, yeah. it seems. 100%. And the crazy thing is we're just talking about issues with, men and women, right? What about yeah. those individuals that fall fall in between? Yeah, so right? let's... Or identify differently. And that's a great... Let's move in. Um, I know there's a whole bunch of other terms, but can you maybe yeah. to talk a little bit about transgender versus transsexual versus cisgender and what those terms mean and how they kind of relate to what we're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So this is, again, where um, things get a little bit maybe confusing for people mm-hmm. or... Um, there's a lot of gray area, essentially. So I'm a firm believer in being educated in these terms in order to utilize them correctly, essentially. Um, And that's what I tell my students a lot of the time. I said, you know, there's power in education, obviously. Mm -hmm. But to be able to have a conversation and talk about these is super important. So let's start with gender nonconforming. So this is when your gender identity, so that internal sense of being male or female, is not congruent with your assigned physical sex. Okay. Okay. Um, and we refer to that as just gender nonconforming. Uh, your gender expression is something that you do every single day, right? So you, do, you get up and you make a conscious decision what clothes you're going to put on. Are you going to put makeup on or not? How are you going to style your hair? Even the way we walk, talk, and interact in public is gender expression. So those two things are not something we clearly, I guess, put a label on or identify. These are just things that we do. So when we're referring to somebody who's cisgendered, we're talking about somebody who their gender identity is consistent with their birth sex. Okay. And there's a whole movement with utilizing this word in a new way, essentially. But what it is, is the opposite of how we would define somebody who is trans or a transgender individual. Okay. So a trans individual is where their gender identity is different from their gender, their sex assigned at birth. Gotcha. Um, And oftentimes we refer to trans individuals as male to female or female to male. So where cisgender comes from is this idea that for some reason we have to label individuals as trans, right? Well, that then already ostracizes them to begin with. Yeah. So why not start labeling the other portion, which are cisgender people? So identifying that way, just utilizing that term more. Makes perfect sense where we are a society that loves labels. 
Mm-hmm. Like we love putting a label onto something, whether it's positive or negative. So that, it, to me, that makes sense then. If Hey, if we're going to assign a label to individuals whose gender identity doesn't match with their gender that they were assigned at birth, why not give the an, another label to people whose identity does match? To me, it, exactly. makes, perfect, it makes perfect sense. Okay, so I understand cisgender and transgender. What is transsexual then? Okay, a transsexual individual is a transgendered person. Okay. Is a trans person. But a trans person does not necessarily have to be a transsexual individual. Okay. So okay. a transsexual individual seeks some sort of physical surgery or hormone therapy to better align themselves with their gender identity. Okay? okay. So that would mean that would mean if we're talking about a male to female transgender individual, we're talking about testosterone suppression. Yep. Right? Incorporating estrogen into their body mm-hmm. and then seeking some sort of maybe physical surgery to do that. And I guess if, if you just break down the word, it makes perfect sense because right. we said the term sex is biological. So there is a right. physical component to it versus right. the term gender is social. So transsexual, yeah. that makes sense then that they are looking uh, are individuals who are going through a process to, to in some ways change their biology. Yes. Okay. And then not to throw a loop in it even more, Uh-oh. but then there are individuals who are considered to be intersex. Have you heard of this term before? I have not. So, Have, have you heard of Catherine Semenya? I have not. Okay. She is a runner from South Africa, oh, dominated yes. the running scene. I know the story. I didn't, I didn't know the name. Okay. Proceed. Yes. Okay. Yes. Catherine Semenya um, is an intersex individual. Okay. So intersex is a general term essentially used for a variety of conditions in which a person is born with maybe varying hormone levels, maybe sexual anatomy that doesn't fit what we would consider male or female. Um, Again, we're talking about chromosomes. We're talking about numerous things. Okay. These can present physically or they can present internally, right? Mm -hmm. Again, through hormones or, or genes or whatever that, that may be. Mm -hmm. Okay. So what's super interesting about intersex is that it is as common as encountering somebody with red hair. Yes. Okay. So it is, I mean, it's something that oftentimes goes undiagnosed, if you can say that, right? Because we're all not going to the doctor to check our, you know, yeah. our hormone levels unless something's wrong. So Catherine Semenya dominated the running scene. I think she was a sprinter. I don't remember which um I want to say Which it was meter. like maybe the 400 and it wasn't like, I think you might. Yeah. It was in embarrassing how dominant she was. Like, right. Like it was not even close. The races she was running. Right. And that raised red flags for individuals. She's a taller type woman, muscular, right. And she was dominating. So there's a whole component to this too. When we're talking about intersex athletes, the vast majority of the time, we're only talking about female athletes because they're exceptionally good. And when female athletes are exceptionally good, we question that ability. Yeah, it's it's almost like it doesn't fit some of those previous things that we're talking about. We can't wrap our mind around as a society like, wait, why is she so good? Versus we have like the same bolt. We could be asking the exact same question. Wait a minute. Why is he so good? This doesn't make sense. He's broken all these world records, winning all these medals. And yet it's... With Usain, it's just like, oh, he's just naturally gifted. Like, I've, I've heard right. that said. But with this athlete that you're talking about, 
it was the whole conversation was well it doesn't make let's really really dive into this so that way we can explain right. it so it makes so sense to our brains 100 percent. or a vast majority of the time when we question athletic um male athletic ability we celebrate it so michael phelps is a great example so being intersex is a genetic condition. That is something that somebody cannot help. Mm-hmm. The very same way in which I would argue Michael Phelps can't help it if his wingspan is, what, nine foot or something yeah. ridiculous? Yeah. Right? It's the same kind of stuff. Or we'll celebrate male athletes for being so tall. Yeah. It's the same concept. This is something that they were born with that has made them better at a sport. So when we're talking about intersex athletes, we're talking about a lot of policy problems and issues. So she was first and foremost, banned from participating. Um, there were multiple levels of testing that she had to go through. I mean, her body was poked and prodded, um, examined, physically examined, something that no person should have to go through, essentially, because they have a condition. Um, and now, at the current moment, I think she's banned right now and it's going up for appeal yes. um, because of her condition, because they're requiring her to get surgery in order to continue to participate and you know that surgery or medical procedure is something that she doesn't want to put her body through right and why should she have to yeah again this was big maybe this was a year ago that this i first saw this story um Mm -hmm. come out because she was the ioc the international olympic committee banned her from competing uh right and and the ioc i don't want to dive into this but the ioc i know has a whole history of gender testing that is to be frank, it's appalling. It's it's absurd. It is. Um, but that's like a whole another conversation. But it's this is not a new thing for the IOC to do. And if I remember, one of the, one of the options they gave her is you can go through treatment to reduce your natural levels of testosterone down to an acceptable level, quote unquote, acceptable level for a female athlete. But right. it, I think the way you phrased that is perfect because it's like my favorite NBA player right now, who's not like a big name, is a, a guy named mm-hmm. Taco Fall, who's played at UCF last year. He's on the Celtics, my favorite team. He's 7-6. The only reason he's in the NBA is because he's 7-6. Now, he's right. okay, but he's not great. But why do I like I like him because he's tall, because he's so right. big. And when there's another guy on the team that's like 5-11, it's funny to see him stand next to each other because one's so big compared. And yet, he's celebrated. Everyone in Boston right. loves him as an athlete. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't tell him that he had to go get you know, five inches cut off of his legs or yeah. participate. Yeah. Now, to be clear, in some sports, we do have rules about physicality, things like boxing, where yeah. we establish weight limits. But mm-hmm. in most sports, we don't have that. We celebrate that with men. But it's interesting that with the female athletes, we have to, we almost are looking for a reason to figure out why they're so superior to everyone else. And sports, that unique thing, right? Because we like a fair winner and a fair loser. And when things maybe put that at risk, people freak out. And that's why I think a lot of trans athletes have the issues that they have in terms of entering this space of competition or fair competition. Yeah. So before we before we get into I want to talk about some specific policies that are in place. Are there any other terms or language that we need to have an understanding of before we get into those conversations? Yeah, I think before we head into some of the trans athlete policies, we need to talk about how we continue to identify individuals who are trans. So um, there's a period of time when a trans individual decides to make changes or not make changes to their bodies. We refer to that period as a transitioning period. Mm -hmm. 
whether that's physical, whether that's internal, we just call that the transitioning period. Okay. Um, and then in the world of sport, we, in a way, have to do what we consider fully identifying somebody as either male or female. I think in the LGBTQ community, this isn't something that's oftentimes talked about when we're going to, when I talk about these next two terms, but we're talking about trans men being affirmed males, essentially. So we're talking about gaining characteristics of a biological male through hormone therapy. Okay. And when we look at some of these policies, I think that'll um, make more sense. Okay. And then for trans women, the same thing, affirmed females. So gaining characteristics of a biological female through hormone therapy. Um, sex reassignment surgery, again, is changes made to their anatomy and outward appearance. This is also something that ended up being a big topic of conversation when we look at Caitlyn Jenner mm -hmm. as an athlete. People yeah. were so interested in this part of it. And all I can say to people is, would you go around and be comfortable if somebody was asking you about your own sex, for example? Yeah. So this is something that... For some reason, I don't know if it's the media's fault, whose fault it is, but feel like we need to know this part. And all I can say is we don't, right? Yes. So it's really no one's business, but it's still important to define. Yeah. Um, and, I, and then, go ahead. I, I just remember, I want one of the things I want to just point out, um, because I think it's, I, I don't want people to listen to this and think, oh, I'm a bad person right. for, for not knowing this. Because I remember with the, the Caitlyn Jenner stuff, it was the first for me instance of being aware of an individual who was transitioning and then becoming an affirmed female. And it was very right. publicized. And so I remember thinking and having these same questions and thinking like, Oh, I wonder if, if she went through sex reassignment surgery, what was that like? And I remember like watching her talk about, or, or people ask her questions about it and her saying like, that's really not appropriate. And, it's not your business, right? Yeah. yeah. But at the time, I had never been exposed to it, so I didn't know that it wasn't my business because mm -hmm. I never thought about oh, it. I never gone through that process of actually thinking about, wait a minute, would I want someone asking me about my own sex? Probably not. Like I wouldn't. That wouldn't right. be a comfortable conversation, and I would probably be pretty dismissive of that person, and, and maybe even even in an angry way. So I think it's yeah. it's okay for people not to understand it if because I would say a lot of people maybe have never had that experience. But right. at the same time, when presented with information, when presented with education, the question of whether it's okay or not okay becomes a lot clearer. Yeah. And again, that's just all the process of being exposed. Yes. Right? Or mm -hmm. or being able to talk about it. So mm -hmm. again, you're I think what you're saying is completely true, right? Um a vast majority of individuals hadn't talked about trans individuals before Caitlyn Jenner came out. So mm -hmm. um, they're all good conversations to have, I think. Mm -hmm. The only other terms that I, that I see maybe uh, if you could just hit on quick are sexual orientation versus sexual identity. Yeah. So sexual orientation is one's emotional and sexual attraction. Okay. So essentially who you're attracted to mm -hmm. sexually. Um, and when we're looking at the LGBTQIA plus community, we're talking about those labels, mm -hmm. right? And that then influences an individual's sexual identity, okay? So that's kind of this sense of self based on a connection to community. So, for okay. example, like I said, the LGBTQIA plus community. And if you want, I can go through, and some people don't even know the acronym behind LGBTQIA. No, I think, so, that'd, be, I think that'd be great to, to make sure. 
Yeah, so the L is lesbian, the B is bisexual, the G is gay, the T is trans, the Q is queer, the I is intersex, and the A is asexual. And then the plus is whatever else you would like to identify. I know there's pansexual, etc. So I think now we have a good understanding of the language. From a management yeah. side, and this is where I get really, really interested is mm-hmm. in talking about how do organizations, especially as we've talked about with sport organizations, where this is like the, maybe one area that we're not reflecting society well, how do sport organizations go about handling the issue of individuals along the spectrum, specifically individuals who are trans athletes? So what I've noticed is a lot of these policies didn't come into play until they had a trans athlete, mm-hmm. right, or somebody who wanted to participate. So the NCAA has a policy, and they have almost, I guess you can consider it a a two- to three-part policy, but they have a policy regarding those students who undergo hormone treatments and then those who do not go under hormone treatments. So the easiest one, I think, to understand is the transgender male student-athlete policy. Mm -hmm. So essentially, the first time that individual takes testosterone, they become immediately ineligible to participate in women's sports. Okay. And they're able to compete on a men's team pretty much right away. There's no need to wait. They can compete if they so choose. Okay. That team, again, then wouldn't have to, um, the women's team then doesn't have to change their team status to a mixed team. And that just becomes convoluted. So a lot of the times we see transgender male athletes taking testosterone and then immediately participating with the men's team if they so choose or also if they make that team there's that there's that issue too yes okay this is probably where it gets really really tough is there a limit to the amount of testosterone that uh, an individual who's transitioning from female to male is allowed to take so that's something that is decided at the beginning with their doctor so okay a trans individual doesn't start just pumping large amounts of testosterone into their body. It's something that has to be gradually introduced. Okay. Um, But when we're talking about sport, we know that there is an importance placed on testosterone, I guess, in terms of the amount that somebody Mm -hmm. would have in their body, right? Because we assume or associate testosterone with strength and all those kind of things. Yeah, I think specifically of like the newest, not newest, but the most up-to-date form of drug testing for PEDs is this biological passport Mm -hmm. where... They get yeah. a baseline number on a number of different hormones. Testosterone is is one of those hormones. But the idea is, is if I have a baseline for that, everyone, as we've talked about, biologically, we're born different. Even if we're males, I might have really high testosterone. Someone might have really low. But we get a baseline, and then there's you're not able to exceed a certain number based off of that. So I didn't know right. with that idea of the biological passport, is that something that the NSA even takes into consideration for individuals that are going through uh, a transition. Yeah. I know that similar to the IOC, they kind of have that threshold, okay. right, of what is to considered to be a normal amount of testosterone for a cisgendered individual. Okay. And that's that's a whole nother conversation about the term normal because – in general, right. uh, a lot of the elite level male athletes have extremely high levels of testosterone that are natural to them. Yeah. So that's a whole. Right. It becomes re- that's it becomes a really really complicated way of saying that once you take testosterone, you now can compete in a male sport because of testosterone. But again, someone's you know as someone who's transitioning, their testosterone that level might be quote unquote high compared to the normal already. And it becomes very hard to use something like 
testosterone as a metric. Yeah, absolutely. So it seems like for females to male, it, it's pretty straightforward. Once an individual takes testosterone, they, in terms of the NCA, they become classified as a male athlete. They can compete with no limitations on a men's team, but they cannot yes. now compete on a women's team unless the team changes its classification into being a mixed team. And all really a mixed team is just saying that there's a mix of both males and females. Right, co-ed, yeah. Yeah, so... That's pretty simple. It, what about for the, the other one, uh, a transgender female? So a transgender female, a little bit different. So as soon as they're treated with suppression of testosterone production for that transition of uh, gender or sex, they can continue to compete on the men's team. So if they want to continue to compete with that male team, they can by all means. Okay. But they cannot compete on a woman's team, um, again, without changing it to that mixed status or until completing one calendar year of that treatment of testosterone suppression or one year post-surgical, some sort of surgical intervention. Essentially, that gives the body time to regulate the lack of testosterone boosting other other hormones yeah. um, to become level or in accordance with what is you know an acceptable level of testosterone in their body. What's really interesting to me is that that we put such we we assign testosterone as this like end all be all to how we deal with individuals who are transgender. It's like so much importance is placed on this one hormone. Mm-hmm. And I'm not I'm not saying it's yes. right. I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I don't know enough mm-hmm. about it. Maybe the importance should be there. Yeah. But but I do know enough to know that there are numerous hormones that act to affect the traits that it seems like they're concerned about with testosterone. The idea of, um, I, I guess what they're trying to accomplish is to establish a fair and balanced playing field. And maybe the only way they can think to do that is through this means. Yep. And that's the only way I think they can currently figure it out. I think many are, are glad that the policy exists to begin with. Yes. Um, if that makes sense. Uh, I yeah. came from an institution previously where for the first time at a division one level, we had an athlete compete on both the female team and the men's team within their four years of eligibility. Okay. So, I mean, that was just in 2012, 13, yeah. 14 uh, time period. So this policy is at work, which is nice to see. But how do they deal with athletes who are transgender, male, transgender, female, who are not wanting to become transsexual. Because I, I want to, remember we said transgender deals with the social construction because of the term gender. So what, what the policy is basically saying is if you are a transgender individual who is becoming, and correct me if I'm wrong, but is becoming transsexual, then we have a policy in place. But what if you are a transgender individual who doesn't want to undergo hormone treatment, whether it's to get testosterone or um, to go through testosterone suppression? How do, how, do, how do they treat those individuals? So they have a couple recommendations based on that. They can continue to participate in the sex-separate sports in accordance with that assigned sex at birth, Okay. even if they want to present themselves as female or male, if that doesn't align with the sport they're playing. So a trans male can still play um, on the women's team and present himself as male visually or however he so chooses. Um, A female to male transgender student may participate on a men's or women's team. 
So they have the freedom to do either one. But when we're talking about a male to female transgender student athlete, they may not compete on a women's team. And but they can, can still they can, can still pe- compete on that men's team. Yeah. So I was just gonna say. So is the, is the thought there that it would be unfair for an individual whose sex is male to compete against individuals whose sex is female? Yeah. There, I think their point is to produce a level of inclusivity still through sport while maintaining equity and fairness mm-hmm. within the game. Yeah. It's it's. I tough. think that's their point. It's tough because I don't think, as as a complete outsider to this topic, I don't know that there is a right or wrong policy. So it, it's tough, I think, and this is good from, from an educational standpoint for sport managers, I think it's important to take into consideration what is sport? What are we trying to accomplish with sport in general? And one of the things that you and I have mentioned is one of the key essence of sport in theory is that we have a balanced playing field. That's why, again, in theory, we right. don't allow PEDs within sports. Right. And so if that's the core idea that we're trying to protect, all of our policies, whether it's policies dealing with performance enhancement in sport or if it's our policy with how we treat individuals based off of their gender, should somehow try to aid in that purpose. The problem right. is how do we create a policy that does that and treats the individual who's being affected by the policy in a fair manner? Right. And with respect, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, again, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I wish it, there was a right answer because all these, especially if you look at it from like a contextual perspective, each individual is different, right? We're talking about bodies that yeah. are, you, you can't you know, put a number on or regulate, et cetera. So, and we're also talking about the individual themselves. Um, And not ostracizing that individual because we know the trans community and the LGBTQ community um, are not treated the best within our society. Mm -hmm. And that affects them as individuals. We're talking about things like high suicide rates, et cetera. And being excluded from sport, we know, can have a heavy influence on on people's lives and how they view themselves. So it's a super serious matter. Yeah, as, as sport management professors, one of the things I know both of us talk about a ton is the value of sport within society, the good right. that can come from sport. So if we are just excluding a portion of our population from participation, we're now saying you are not entitled to all the good that can come from it. Mm-hmm. So it becomes it becomes really difficult. And then to, on the other side, I love how we always make the argument that sport should be a fair and balanced playing field, but sport inherently is not fair and balanced. I am am 100% (laughs) limited by my biology. And, you know, I play soccer. I played soccer in college. I wish I was taller. I wish I was faster. I wish I could jump higher. I I can only Uh control very little bit of that. I can maybe make myself jump a little higher, but there's limitations to it that are based on my biology. So there were players out there that were just born that have genetic gifts. My, My roommate just was a genetically gifted person who was super fast, super strong, and didn't have to work at it. So, like, sport inherently is not fair. Right. On multiple levels, right? Yeah. And so that's the other side of it to say, well, we want it, We want to protect what it is that sport is, but if we're really truthful about what sport is, maybe we should err more on the side of being inclusive to people because mm-hmm. of all the good that sport can come from sport participation because, in general, individuals on the field are biologically all 100% different, and we might have people that have an advantage based off the fact that they're taller or faster or whatever. Exactly. So the NCAA one I knew nothing about before we talked about doing this, the IOC policy. 
I knew a little mm-hmm. bit more about just because of that conversation that we already had a little bit about. Can you maybe talk to us a little bit about what the IOC policy is and how it might be a little bit different specifically from the NCA? Yeah. So in terms of where it's different, when we're talking about the difference between um, male to female, female to male, we do still see a difference, right? And when we're talking about waiting periods, et cetera. But the IOC does a little bit more in terms of testing and they give it more concrete measures in terms of advantages and competition and vice versa. So those who transition from female to male are eligible to compete in the male category without any restrictions, which is very similar to the NCAA, right? Yep, yep. And then those who transition from male to female are eligible to compete in the female category, but they have uh, multiple conditions, essentially. So the athlete, first and foremost, has to declare that her gender identity is female. And then once she does that, she cannot change that declaration for specific sporting purposes for a minimum of four years. And the policy has changed a little bit. So we're going to see a little bit of a difference in 2020. They've actually added spaces for athletes who identify as gender fluid or gender queer non-binary. Okay. They've added spots for them. Yeah. Um, which is super interesting. I need to look more into it, but they did a good job. Then the athlete must demonstrate that her total testosterone level has been below 10 nanomole per liter. And I had to look that up because I didn't know what that (laughs) unit of measurement was for at least 12 months prior to that first competition. So that athlete is getting tested once or twice every single month. Holy cow. I'm assuming that that the number 10 is based off of that quote unquote average. Yes. Normal, what you would consider to be an average normal female body. But I'm so many questions about it because I know if if I am a a cisgender female, I think I'm using the terms correct. If I'm a cisgender Mm -hmm. female and naturally my testosterone level is, let's say, 15 nanomoles per liter, I'm fine to compete. Right. Essentially. But if I am transgender, I have to get it down to that 10 or else I can't compete. Right. But then they go on to say. Okay, there may be a requirement for a longer period of time based on a case-by-case evaluation. Okay. So they may decide that 12 months isn't long enough. Oh, wow. But again, that's case-by-case. Yeah. And the goal is, and they they put it here in the policy, is to minimize any advantage in a women's competition. This reminds me so much of, is it Oscar Pistorius, the South African amputee? Yes. Who's been in the news for really bad reasons, but... Very, yeah. At the heart of why... When we first saw it. Yeah, when he became well known in the first place, it was yeah. it was a very similar type of conversation where he was a double amputee who was dominating the Paralympic competitions. Yeah, it wasn't even close. And then he uh, he went to the IOC to ask to be able to participate in the Olympic Games. And mm-hmm. one of the points of contention was, well, we think you might have an unfair advantage because they were looking at the something to do with the, the spring loading of this and that. But they essentially said, the, we think that your bionic legs give you an unfair advantage over people with two legs. And yeah. they worried that they might establish a precedent where people would cut off their legs to become Olympic athletes. Like, right. That was a, it, it seems absurd to me, especially back it then does. it seemed absurd. But that was a legitimate conversation that was being had. We are worried that people might cut off their legs and get these... Uh, legs that you have to increase their speed in running. Yeah. Now, in the IOC's credit, they ended up sent, allowing him to compete. 
but it's almost the, it seems in my mind at least to be a similar type of thing that they're worried about with this well we might you might have to it might be longer than 12 months because okay. we're worried about you getting an unfair advantage it's almost like they're worried about that same thing about uh, individuals who are males at birth saying hey if i transition to be a female i can win in the olympics right which yes when you actually say it is just as absurd in my mind as saying i'm worried that people are going to cut off their legs so that they can win an olympic race yeah. because this idea of and i i'm friends with trans individuals who i've watched transition um mm -hmm. it is not a fun experience right I, it's not something I that somebody imagine. would willingly willingly sign up for right we're talking about changing the hormones in your body mm -hmm. um your muscles hurt your body changes right yeah um, it's not something that you know it's not that something somebody you would you know just yeah. do to do like you to cut win off your legs. yeah right it, it it again it seems absurd but at, at the time for the, when they were talking about oscar stories it was a legitimate conversation i think a lot of it came from ignorance or just lack of education like we, we've said and so yep. i think i imagine in class when you're having this conversation i imagine there are students who are actually thinking like well we have to set this because if we don't we might have men that are just wanting to compete against women mm -hmm. and i think having conversations like this is a good way to hopefully topple in some of that ideology because yeah. i can't imagine what that process is like i can imagine that it's not fun though and it's not something that people right choose to go through just one day it, it doesn't seem like oh hey i'm gonna do this just now because i want to win right it's, it's absolutely not like that so to the to both the ncaa and ioc's credit they have policies in place which i think is a good starting point yes 100 and in part they almost have to as you said when you were getting your graduate degrees they had a case where they had to have policies in place in in mm -hmm. order to deal with these individuals in part, they're so big, they almost have to. What about smaller organizations? And I'm thinking within sport, things like high school athletic associations or high schools in general. How do they deal with this specific issue? Essentially, they deal with it based on your state. Okay. Okay. So where we see the NCAA and IOC kind of have this um, overarching policy or large mm -hmm. policy that is housed within both those organizations. Mm -hmm. It becomes difficult when you're talking about high schools youth athletics, et cetera. So there are some states where they do have a super inclusive policy, okay? And they're talking about hormone surgery, very similar to the NCAA and IOC, right? Mm -hmm. Then you have other states who go by a case-by-case -case individual review. And how that looks, again, all depends on the state. So it may be directed um, through the state itself. It may be directed through the county in which that school is located in. And even smaller than that, it could be uh, decided by the school district themselves. Oh, wow. Then there's other states who are what we would consider very discriminatory. So they require surgery, hormone weight periods, birth certificate changes, oh, etc. Wow. And then there are other states that simply just do not have a policy. Hmm. So there is no overarching policy in which high schools operate under. It's literally state by state, even case by case. So I remember, and this was, gosh, I don't remember the years ago, but it was a couple years ago, um, North Carolina specifically introduced a bill. Now, it, it yeah. didn't deal specifically with student-athletes, to my knowledge, but it got, it got no. a lot of press because it was the bathroom bill. Right. This is a time where that conversation was 
super prevalent in our country, right? This idea that um, people have to use the bathroom that corresponds with their sex on their birth certificate. So it was a, you know, non-trans inclusive policy, pretty blatantly. And <laughs> it, it, even though it's separate from sport, it, it does tie into a lot of what we're talking about because one of the big th things that came up at that point, it became very political conversation. Right. Highly politicized. But the, the conversation was, well, we are, we're afraid that not having a policy in place and just allowing people to use whatever restroom they want, that it opens up for the potential of sexual assault in female bathroom, that males can just walk in and they have a reason to now and can sexually assault a female. Right. That males will essentially dress like women and assault women in bathrooms, which yeah. again brings us back to this idea where you were talking about Oscar Pistorius, right? And yeah. this idea that for a competition, people cut off their legs or people will decide to transition to perform better in sport. It's mm -hmm. the same kind of idea. Because if you look at the statistics, not one trans individual has been committed of a sex crime in a bathroom. So there was no research behind it. It's just as with all these things, it's almost a lack of exposure that, you know, yeah. with the Oscar Pistorius thing, it was we don't really understand individuals with disabilities, with a physical impairment about what they right. go through. So we're creating policies based off of not having an understanding and out of a fear of the consequences of not having a policy. And, right. it's, and, and it, this bill specifically puts trans individuals in danger because essentially if my trans friends who identify the way in which they would like, if my trans male friend walked into a female bathroom, you'd be like, why is there a male in here? It wouldn't be because you were afraid of being violated, etc. And the vice versa would be if a trans woman walks into a male bathroom, you're talking about trans women who are oftentimes victims of abuse. Mm -hmm. um, the homicide rate of trans women, specifically trans women of color, is very, very high. Um, you're talking about putting these individuals at risk, right, for further discrimination, right, to begin with. So yeah. super problematic. Well, and, and again, this is where I, w I would have to point the NCA. Everyone likes to criticize the NCA for everything, but I think the NCA actually, when this bill passed and instituted, right. the NCA and other, orga other sport organizations stood up against it. And I think that that's admirable that they took a stand. And I remember specifically at Coastal Carolina, we were affected by it because the ACC mm -hmm. championships, I believe in every sport, were played in the state of North Carolina. The NCA came through and said, we are not, you are not allowed to hold any championship events in this state because it has a discriminatory law in place. And they are right. against discrimination. So the ACC women's basketball tournament had to move out of the state and it came actually down to Coastal Carolina and we hosted it that year. And so... Sport yeah. and sport management actually was directly affected by this. What were some of yeah. the other consequences of the HB2 bill that was passed in North Carolina with sports? Yeah, the NBA pulled out of the 2017 All-Star Game. Uh, the National Junior Collegiate Athletic Association pulled their baseball championship. Like you said, ACC pulled all championship events. Um, and then specific universities, so University of Albany and University of Vermont canceled big games, right, against Duke and UNC. So it also does speaks to the power that sport has to create change. So yeah, the, the, this bill was awful, but I like to look at the silver lining of things just because I'm that type of person. Yeah. Because after that happened, they revoked this bill. 
because you started talking about their pocketbooks, right? All those events bring in how much money? It's it's interesting. So we, we said that sport maybe hasn't done a, a great job or, or it's kind of not been completely reflective of society with, with talking about issues and of transgender individuals. Right. But uh, this, I think, is a great case where these organizations, as you said, the NBA, individual institutions and universities, um, the ACC, mm-hmm. the NCAA – all said, we are not going to stand for this. And they actually had right. to say because polling, that's why I said the ACC championships was good for us because we now have people down in our oh, community yeah. that that mm-hmm. aren't going to no- normally be there. They're staying in hotels, they're renting cars, they're eating food, they're going and shopping, they're buying things. As a university at Coastal, we were getting free exposure and free marketing oh, yeah. to that group of individuals. Now, those individuals are in college, but maybe they have brothers or sisters who are coming down to watch and they see the campus. It's a ton of money that is uh, both realized money and potential future money that these things generate. I think the great thing about sport organizations is that they have the power to take something that that bill probably wouldn't have gotten a lot of press on the national stage. But now I'm a national organization. I can bring attention to what I think is discriminatory, and I can try to invoke change. It's And it's such a big pool, right? And it changes literally legislation. You're hard-pressed to find another organization that has that much power. Yeah. The, the ability for sports to help change society for the good is something that, again, we talk about in sport management classes all the time about the power of what it is. So I think mm-hmm. a good maybe place to end the conversation because we talked about some policies that are place and some some of the good things about them maybe some of the questions let's say that i am an organization like a high school or a state high school athletic association that's trying to put in a policy what are some maybe tips or piece of advice you would give for sport managers on how to handle the issue of transgender athletes yeah i think the best thing that we can do is to be pro proactive right don't wait for an individual um, maybe to have a crisis or um, an individual to approach you to say, I'm thinking about transitioning. How does this affect my participation in sport? Do you already have that policy in place or you've already had that conversation with the people you need to have that conversation with? I think you're, you're prepared. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the best thing that, that we can do as sport managers. And the, and the most important thing is constantly be thinking about in- inclusion not just with for trans athletes, but I'm, I'm, we're talking all athletes too. Yeah. If inclusion is at the top of your list, um, I think that's important. Um, and specifically when we're talking about individuals who identify within the LGBTQ community, we're talking about protecting their privacy as well. A lot of these stories become national news. Um, and I don't think for good reason, right? I don't think they're yeah. originally meant to provide education to the public. Oftentimes we're ostracizing these individuals. They get made fun of, whatever that may be. So I think protecting the privacy of your athletes is also important. And the best way you can do this, I think, is through education. Yeah. Not only educating people like coaches, administrators, but talking about these things with your athletes. I know we deal with maybe a lot of students who want to be coaches when they grow up. Mm-hmm. It starts at a grassroots level. Yeah. This idea of not being afraid to talk about things. Right. Yeah. One of my mentors, one of the best things that she talked about was, if something's happening in the news with an athlete who identifies a different way, talk about it with your team, right? Or talk about yeah. it with teammates. That's good. I mean, talk about it in a productive way, right? Not mm-hmm. a discriminatory way, of oh, course. Yeah. <laughs> but establishing that in your climate, in your culture, in your organization is important, right? And I think through education, we can do that. Because what you don't want to run into 
is that discriminatory language or somebody saying something by accident that then offends somebody, then you have an HR problem, right? Yes. So the best thing when we're talking about trans athletes specifically, we're talking about pronouns. Mm-hmm. That is the first and foremost thing that a lot of trans individuals worry about, they stress about, um, they're self-conscious about. And the best advice, I mean, I give my students is if you are unsure about somebody's pronouns, simply ask. There's nothing wrong with that if you politely ask, what pronouns do you prefer? Mm-hmm. And I also know there's a whole movement that we're all starting to identify our pronouns. I know yes. the end yeah. of my signature, I've added she and hers as my pre- preferred pronouns, right? Making these things yeah. normal, um, I think, is important. Yeah. And I think so much of our society, like with the pronouns, for example, we're so afraid to make a mistake with it that yeah. we end up doing nothing. And yeah. not getting educated on it. And we just default uh, oftentimes to maybe just saying the pronoun they versus asking. And we're so afraid to be ostracized for making a mistake. But I think people should realize, like I've, I've admitted, I don't know all of this. I'm, I'm learning this a lot through our conversation. It's okay to admit that you don't know it. As long as you're willing to go through and get educated about it. Right. I think being proactive, I agree with you. I think that's the best approach because... I feel like oftentimes these stories, like you said, that come out and become big news stories, it's because there's not a policy in place. And then we're trying to be retroactive about it and we're trying to go back and legislate something. But in legislating, now I'm dealing with a specific person and I'm probably going to create policy that is in in some way discriminatory towards that person. So it's better to have the policy in place beforehand. Absolutely. And it becomes a part of your culture, right? Yeah. It just becomes a part of the work environment. And yeah, we talked about the work environment, but you can also do other like concrete things. Facility access is a big one, right? Having gender neutral bathrooms, having gender neutral locker rooms. That's something that can be done, right? Um, and then when you're talking about dress codes, um, maybe specifically within schools, right? The K through 12 institutions, there may be specific dress codes. Oh, yeah. um, just being able to allow transgender individuals to dress, you know, in accordance with their gender identity specifically. Yeah, that's that's a really small one that. Yeah, it's and it's but it's easy, right? You yeah, would think exactly. That shouldn't cost that much money or whatever that may be. So you can also set your facility up for inclusion. I I think that's I think that's great advice. And a lot a lot of this are really small things that you can do as a manager yeah. to assure that individuals feel comfortable within your environment, whether that's a facility, whether that's a team, whatever it is. People just want to be included, right? They want yeah. to fit in, essentially. And that's and that's it, all. That's everyone, right? Yeah, and that's it, that's because, what sports yeah. is about too. We want we right? the beauty of sports is that in theory it should be inclusive to everyone. I think as sport managers, we believe that and we try to enact policies that will enable that. But this is just a, a group of individuals that I feel like we've really lagged behind in trying to make them feel included or worrying about them feeling included at all. I don't think a lot of people have even really thought about about this in the past. So I think it's good to have this type of conversation today, hopefully to get people just more Absolutely. mindful of what's going on and to try to start asking questions. Is there anything, anything else kind of in closing you can think of that'd be good for students or people in general to know and understand about this specific topic? Uh, you know, I really think we hit on a vast majority of the of the main key points. But again, I think my only take home message is if you have questions, ask, yes. look up the answer. Right. We live in a world where there's so much information at our fingertips. Um, be intentional and, mm-hmm. and want to learn more. 
Yeah. Um, and a lot of the time with this stuff, it's political in nature, right? And oftentimes mm-hmm. the political doesn't affect us until it becomes personal. Yes. So don't wait for it to become personal until you um, encounter, you have a friend or a family member, whoever, mm-hmm. um, that has to go through something like this. Just be, be proactive in terms of wanting to learn more and, and becoming educated. Awesome. I think that's a great place to stop our conversation about the intersection of gender, sexuality, and sport. I want to thank Dr. Chelsea Connor once again for coming on and teaching us all a little bit more about this topic. I think the policy recommendations that she gave are a great starting point for all of those who want to be sport managers or are already in the sport management world about how to deal with a sensitive and complicated topic going forward. If you have any questions about anything that Chelsea and I covered in this conversation today, please feel free to reach out to us on Instagram at the Sport Professor. Shoot us a message and follow us to stay up to date with the latest topics that we'll be covering on the podcast. Until next time, though, I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Sport Professor Podcast.